Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview podcast, February 27th, 2017, the Real Resistance Fake News edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham in England. I am joined as usual by Scott Lucas, Professor of International Politics and Editor of News and Commentary site EA Worldview. How are you doing today, Scott? Very well, Adam. Thank you. Excellent. You're doing differently from the last show, which we definitely didn't record immediately before this conversation. Exactly. Things, things will be very cheerful in the next two weeks, I'm sure. Lots of uplift. Yes. Uh, hello from the future. Um, and by Kristala Yakinthu, a Birmingham Research Fellow uh, who has uh, moved house no less recently than when you last That's heard right. from her. However, for the purposes of this program, this program like you are now like much more established. In yes. Your, in, loving in the new program. house. Everything is going great. No more boxes. Um, doing well. Yeah, you're, doing you're, well. you're glad you don't have to go through those last yes. two weeks again, right? I tell it's you been, what, hell, it's hell. Been hell. Our two topics today. First, Donald Trump's inauguration as president has given rise to a surge in liberal and progressive political activism not seen in at least a couple of generations in the United States. Many of the participants in it have characterized themselves as a resistance. What does that label imply? Is it a good one? And what are the choices facing those who want to oppose and in due course defeat Donald Trump? Second, with the term fake news now having been comprehensively appropriated and abused by the Trumpian tendency, where do things now stand in the struggle against normalizing lies and casual untruth in politics and journalism? Since Donald Trump was inaugurated on January 20th, there's been a vast surge in leftist center political campaigning and protest in the United States. First, there was the Women's March in cities across the country the day after inauguration. Then there was spontaneous protests at airports in response to the shocking rollout of Trump's executive order on immigration. There have been numerous other demonstrations and marches around the country, as well as waves of citizens contacting members of Congress's offices to demand opposition to some of Trump's cabinet choices and swarming their town hall events to hammer them on policy issues, such as the mooted rollback of government-subsidized health care. One popular label uh, slash hashtag for the movement has been resistance, or indeed resist, which you've probably seen as a sort of follow-on to various people's objecting statements on social media. At the same time, there's been much back and forth among the commentariat on the best way for opponents of Trump to effectively oppose and defeat him. Progressives have urged the Democratic Party to harness energy from activists by embracing their spirit and program. More conservative opponents of Trump, such as, to pull a couple of examples out of the air, the Atlantic's David Frum and Conor Friedersdorf, have an, uh, advised organizers to steer activism towards a broad church movement centered on the defense of basic American values and institutions and avoiding having a radical fringe dominate. The reason for that, they would say, uh, is because both the issues and the aesthetic of that radical fringe are likely to prove divisive and alienate potentially swayable middle American voters. So, Cristal, la, la, yes. la. Um, Let's start with the like linguistic dimension mm -hmm. and the concept associated with it here. Like, it, this is clearly a thing. We can see it all over social media. People are saying resist. Yes. They're saying we are the resistance. Is that a good way of framing uh, what it is that people are looking to do vis-a-vis -vis Donald Trump? I think. I mean, resistance has a long history as a term. 
Um, and I think insofar as it helps galv galvanise people's opposition to something that is repulsive, um, I think that it's useful. And it's, uh, I mean, li linguistics are also organising tools as well and organising principles. And so to say resist, you know, take arms against this regime or, or however it's phrased, or in Scott's terms, uh, dawn is coming. Um, mm -hmm. Hashtag of a generation. That's right. Um, there's something valuable in it. But I think it also, I mean, it harks back to and shouldn't undermine simultaneously the idea that people and groups have been resisting domination for a long time and groups within the US have been organising as resistors for a long time pre-Trump. So, for example, the Standing Rock resistance or Black Lives Matter or various activists who have been really resisting and putting their bodies and their lives and their well-being on the line. Um, I mean, these are, these are the kind of, this is the backbone of what resistance means both in the US and globally. And so I think that there's a risk when we talk about resistance, for example, of the, the white middle class uh, resisting by, I don't know, uh, not buying Ivanka Trump's clothes. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a risk in cheapening the term. That's one thing. But from another perspective, if it galvanises people, it galvanises people. Right. I mean, like one of the <coughs> objections that I can imagine uh, someone making to this would be to say, OK, Donald Trump is an elected leader. Um, he is doing stuff that many people really don't like. Mm. Uh, but so far, at least, he's doing it through the usual channels. That is to say, he's issuing executive orders, he's seeking new legislation. Now, some of the executive orders he's, he's released uh, have been tested in the courts, and that continues, but mm -hmm. he is at least so far respecting the decisions of those courts that have come down with, with, with regard to them. So the concept of resistance implies a sort of extrajudicial threat um, on the part of the executive and therefore the need for a sort of extrajudicial response. Extra systemic response. Yeah. Is that justified as a posture at this point? So it depends on how you see the Muslim ban kind of stuff um, and the various efforts to, to, to push through bits of legislation using legitimate infrastructure of the state. Mm. Uh, to do very illiberal things, right? So um, is it right to say resist to these, to these, um, these uh, executive orders, for example? Yes, I think it is. And insofar as resistance can be a tool to wake people up, the term resistance can be a tool to wake people up to the ways in which legitimate government is used to do illiberal mm -hmm. and illegitimate things, then I mm -hmm. think that it, the tool as a an educative term is useful. Mm -hmm. you, it's how you use it from there. It's what you teach people to do or you how you think of what resistance is that's valuable. Mm -hmm. So it's not just a procedural thing then, because like, in one conception, like one resists uh, you know, an occupation or one resists an overturning of the existing political order, but one simply opposes uh, and but but once defeated through the usual legislative channels accepts uh, uh, 
measures that one substantively doesn't like if it's purely procedural. Another way of looking at it would be that there is some threshold in terms of the substance of what you are trying to do, that no matter how uh, appropriate the formal route through which you pursued it, it's just unacceptable to do certain things, and it's, it's, it's therefore time to do something more than simply oppose at a certain point. So far, resistance has been... Uh, it's been judicial, it's mm-hmm. been forms of protest, it's been organisational, it's been through the media. Uh, it has largely not been overthrowing the state as such or insurrection or mm-hmm. anything like that. So also this resistance, you know, in inverted quotes, is following, is following kind of standard procedures for opposition, I think. So, I mean, the lines are blurred, but also, I mean, why uh, why do you care so much about the semantics of, of what, uh, of whether it's resistance or opposition? Mm. I would push back to you. Because for me, the value is in um, how people respond to the threats to their uh, rights and that is minority rights, that is rights of people to um, worship as they see fit, um, and that is rights of people to enter the country and so on that have been directly kind of affected in the last three weeks or two weeks. How long has he been president? Uh, three, four. About, about, oh my about God, ten years, <clears throat> I think. Um, yes, uh, we're at the end of February. My point is that we should focus on... Um, ways that we can respond and tools that people can use to respond across the sectors of of society's writ large Mm -hmm. and less on the semantics of of whether it's resistance or opposition. I'm totally pushing that question back to you, Adam. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess my, my thought would be this. Like, we have gone through a, a period of eight years of escalating, um, extremism on one like that is asymmetrically located on one side of the political spectrum right the republican party and especially its voting base fundamentally refused to accept the agenda and the political values and to some extent the basic legitimacy and right to to govern of uh, of their opponents and ground the whole political process to to a halt as a result of it. And had Donald Trump lost the election, there was very serious concern that he would refuse to accept that result as legitimate, appeal to a wide range of people who felt who, who were primed to, to, to think similarly, and draw the country into some kind of institutional and political crisis as, as, as a means of as doing that. As opposed to yeah. the political institutional yeah. crisis that it's <laughs> That in comes now. with, the, yeah. I think he was hoping to be <clears throat> on, the ex, on the outside government side of an institutional crisis rather than presiding over one, but you know, uh, sometimes, potato, sometimes potato. things don't work out as you plan. So, but my, th- my thought in this case is, right, like characterizing Donald Trump as vile and obnoxious yeah. and hateful and needing to be stopped uh, is, uh, you know, a commonsensical, appropriate objective and goal. And to the extent that getting people riled up to do that, to like call their congressmen and go into the streets to protest and, and, and get engaged with the process requires inspirational language mm-hmm. and... Like, uh, like the, the 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 
the terms of discussion of a seminar are not the terms of discussion of a street protest yeah. and nor can they be nor should they be so if, you know if you want to do one you need to talk in different terms and get people in a different frame of mind than you otherwise might yeah. however taken beyond a certain point yeah. like conceived of not as opposition through the standard channels in the hope of election victory next time but yeah. rather as like full spectrum stop the uh, stop the world resistance to a, an intrinsically illegitimate government mm -hmm. um, this might set the stage for a mirror image on the progressive left of what we already have on the reactionary right which is a total extra institutional yeah. denial yeah. of the legitimacy uh, in electoral terms of the opposition side so it might set the stage for some like full full scale collapse of of, of electoral politics and that's a nightmare made, scenario and i don't know if it's going to happen a very similar argument uh, pre trump about the use of the word fascism i remember and to be much more careful about terms like this um, and throwing them about um, and so you know it resonates with you with your with your the way that your positioning having to be careful or needing to be careful about resistance because of the implications of that mm -hmm. and the divisiveness that it that it creates and rightly so but i would argue that however you term it and we're not in a seminar we're still there fascism or not fascism resistance or opposition we're still in a mm -hmm. place globally where people don't relate to each other where people are deeply separated and where um, there is total people are speaking at cross purposes to each other so one of those cross purposes is the way that the US government the US executive is shaping itself and its reactions to various um, foreign foreign affairs and domestic issues right mm -hmm. so I think what's more important than our focus on how we frame things is how we get to a place where we are not where we are listening to each other rather than so deeply divided I agree but look I, first of all, I've got a dog in this fight because I very much consider myself an activist um, and would be part of those who protest resist um, call for something better on a daily basis um, I fully echo what Cristala says that we have to be able to talk to each other through this. But Adam, let's let's be clear here that this is not what you know protest or resistance to tear down the American system. This is protest and resistance to try to save the damn thing. Because when you talk about Trump, this is something beyond what we have seen in the past, with the possible exception of, of Nixon at the tail end of uh, you know his years as president. And that is a man who is so fundamentally beyond working within the system, whether it be for himself, whether it be for the ideology that a couple of his hard-right advisors are pursuing, that he knows no respect for the system, which he is nominating. And when people came out the day afterward in the Women's March, it wasn't just about women's issues. It was at that starting point, look, we want a system that we can believe in. And then beyond the man, you're talking about certain policies which are touchstones of this where I think resist is the right word. When you're talking about keeping people out of the country simply because of their religion, which is what it is, 
then you have to resist that if you believe in American values. When you're talking about sweeping up thousands of people, and it has already started, people who may be undocumented but have committed no crime, and you're just simply going to turf them out of the country just because you hate them for their ethnicity or you hate them because they're not you, that's against the American system and against American values. And that's why you get people like David Fron and Conrad Friedersdorf, you know, who consider themselves conservatives, who are basically saying, look, we're, we're in this together. Now, there will be a phase beyond this. There will be a phase where, touch wood, Trump and uh, the fire breathers are gone. And then you have to say, okay, how did our system get so damaged economically, socially, politically, that we allowed this to happen? And there you've got to reach out. And I know you're concerned about this and quite rightly. So you have to reach out to those who may have voted for Trump or those who may see America as being a type of identity politics and therefore are worried about gay rights or women's rights or are worried about uh, you know political correctness. So you've got to reach out and find that dialogue with those folks. But just as you face an unprecedented crisis, you face an unprecedented moment, or at least one probably without precedent since the 1960s. And that is, you need to come up with a new form of language, you need to come up with a new form of relating to each other, but on eternals, on values, um, and on the fundamentals of decency. And if resistant bodies it, so be it. If, I like this one, if she persists or we persist, uh, in honor of the fact that Elizabeth Warren, the senator from Massachusetts, stood up against the attempt to silence her over the confirmation of a man who has suspect views on race. Mm -hmm. uh, Jeff Sessions is attorney general. Yeah. So be it. Well, he was too racist to be a judge in the 1980s, apparently, but he's not too racist to be the attorney exactly. general in 2017, which you know yep. is, is uh, a somewhat telling contrast right. of the times. Right. So resist, persist, and then insist. Insist. That, that we don't, you know, check our right to speak out respectfully and so on just because this man happens to be president. Um, we already face an administration which is trying to say that it is not reviewable by courts, it's not reviewable by the media, and therefore it's not reviewable by the public. So, yes, that is to be resisted. I mean, I guess to, like, to simultaneously push back against myself and uh, still follow a part of the line, the line of argument through. Like one of the reasons that I think is misguided why people advocate restraint on the on the left is because of some expectation of reciprocity. Like there, there is the idea that if you know, if if one uh, tries to. Uh, be respectful of the other side's agenda and articulate shareable principles and meet in the middle on issues of substance, then that is the best way of cultivating on the other side a similar tendency and ultimately bringing society together. Okay, we've run that experiment, okay? Yeah. That, that was the Obama presidency. He did almost nothing for the first several years but try and frame in uh, shared and agreed terms the issues at hand and split the difference in terms of the solutions and he got nothing but escalating extremism so like whatever the motivation is I think it's a mugs game definitely at this point to try and get the increasingly uh, maniacal and reactionary right to be re to, to show reciprocity that ship if it ever uh, existed, has long since sailed, which means that w there has to be a kind of cleaving to some internal compass uh, as to what the right thing to do is on, on our side. And that, that's where I think there is a distinction that it is important to make, right? If, 
if the if, if there is to be a shared society like a polity in which decisions are made democratically and we all abide by them etc the, there will have to be a spectrum of some allowable divergence between the conservative and the progressive within that and sometimes conservatives will win and they will do conservative things and sometimes like liberals and progressives will win and they will do liberal and progressive things the thing about trump the thing that makes him this extraordinary threat is that the very processes and norms and values by which those kinds of who's in charge and who gets to do what they want to do that 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 appears to be to be to some degree under threat and the as was the one cautionary note is to the extent that the way in which opposition to him is organized and articulated starts to slip into saying not that the institutions by which decisions are made and power is allocated and and the rule of law is upheld need to be held in place but the substance of what in different hands would be a mainstream governing agenda that that is inherently illegitimate and and cannot be allowed to be um, even if pursued through the normal channels that that's that's much dicier and I think a broad coalition uniting centrists and progressives to say whatever one wants to do with them, the institutions have got to stay, um, should be more of a priority, although simultaneously a priority with pushing the substance of a liberal agenda, which, of course, one would hope to see recovered to power in the future. Yeah, but, but Adam, that's, that's where we are. I mean, I know your fear of the extreme left, and I know that you always want to be careful because you are liberal that you say, look, we, we can't, we've got to recognize. But we're not talking extreme left here. I mean, if you guys out in Berkeley causing trouble, anarchists, because you've got effectively a, a very far-right figure who's allowed to speak, that's not... It's asymmetrical. It's entirely asymmetrical. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. You know, so let's get back to to where we are, not just simply say, you know, we have to stick with down with this sort of thing. There's my reference I've been trying to get in. You know, to Father Ted. To Father Ted, Ted. exactly. <laughs> I think that you, when the Women's March, when the Women's March took place the day after Trump's inauguration, we'll talk more about this when the fake news uh, item comes up, but when they marched, what I was impressed with when those millions of people came out is they didn't come out according to an ideological platform, Right. They didn't come out according to guidelines that were set down on what you do. They came out from the reaction they felt in part about the man and a part about what he had done, but in part about what he was going to stand for as president in terms of possible policies or at least caricatures of policies. And they said, no, this is not us. And they did so peacefully and they did so respectfully. Now, that was something to which a lot of people who were conservatives responded to. So I'm absolutely in accord with where you're coming from while a little bit downplaying your, look, let's just not throw the extreme left specter up there Mm -hmm. and hold on to what's there. Um, There was a historian, and I disagree with his interpretation, but I agree with his, his, what he wanted to do, named Richard Hofstadter back in the 1950s when America was dealing with some other extremists. Uh, on the right, and Hofstadter kept saying, well, we need to, you know, age of consensus. We look for an age of consensus, right? Well, that consensus quite often has been mythical in America, but to the extent that we're trying to say, look, there needs to be a consensus upon certain things here, while, again, disagreeing on what exactly, what type of medical care system we have, what type of education system we have, I understand that, but at least there's consensus on the starting point, mm-hmm. and that's what we've got to get to right now, and it is urgent. Because I do want to be clear here. 
the guys who are inside now will tear this system apart. And I say that quite deliberately with respect to a Steve Bannon, with respect to a Stephen Miller. In the name of supposedly defending American nationalism, they will rip apart everything about America because they are that driven. And so, yeah, stand and fight. Yeah, but America, I mean, in ripping it apart, they're also really exposing the fault lines. I mean, to some extent, they're already exposed, but America is also racist. America also has a it has a has a deep misogyny. America also has all of these things that are now the fault lines of I don't know of the next battle and of the possibilities of uniting kind of conservatives and liberals, maybe writ large. But it's not in 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 tearing apart America's democratic culture it's also exposing in a way that none of us can turn away from just how deeply flawed these things are so you call out yeah. you call out respectfully Fox News yep. hi guys you call out Breitbart yep. which produced a Steve Bannon you call it out you call out a Milo Yiannopoulos you know that jacked up basically self promoter of saying things that are extreme just so he can make money in elevation you call that out respectfully that's what I'm saying we don't shy away from. But I, I think, God, and, and as grumpy as I can be, including on the last podcast, you know, there's a, I have a real hope here. I have a real hope that things have gotten to such a critical point that you will see the good come out of people now. Mm-hmm. You see, I mean, you see um, protests and you see, you see Brooklyn as a hotbed of, re, you know, of, 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 of resistance, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you see things that... One didn't expect to see. Yeah. And I, th- I think, you know, as a, as a final note, because we've got to wrap this item up, that this is going to be a real test for uh, conservatives in the United States, I think, that for a very long time, the conservative movement has purported to justify a lot of its ideas and its agenda by reference to the idea of the Constitution and the law and the importance of equality before it, while combining that with saying, you know, within that framework we want small government and, uh, you know, red in tooth and claw capitalism and, you know, all of that kind of thing. And, you know, some people like Jonathan Chait for, the, for New York Magazine, for example, say, well, look, what's been revealed here is that a lot of that was just guff. But when you have someone who is a, a bellicose nationalist uh, with a, 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 a no longer a racist subtext but just a racist text, mm. all of these uh, supposedly principled constitution-oriented conservatives are falling in line to get their you know their tax cuts and their state slashing through o- on the back of it. So the, the test will be like will. Clearly, the majority of the conservative movement has been revealed to... Well, the, no, that's not quite true. The majority of the voting base of the conservative movement has been revealed to be motivated more by nationalism and reactionary views on race and culture than any commitment to the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, there are some people currently in Congress, which is the one institution that does unambiguously have the power to seriously check the president if it should choose to, who have long track records greatly predating the arrival of Donald Trump of taking what look like and sound like principled stands on the importance of the rule of law and on some of these American values, albeit interpreted from a constitutional, from a conservative angle. And it will be a, a test of epic generational and characterological scale to see 
as this presidency progresses, if it becomes a real and material threat to the rule of law, especially if some kind of Reichstag fire type situation breaks out after a terrorist attack, will those people take the necessary stand? Because I feel like if Donald Trump is stopped, while while it will be necessary for there to be a well-mobilized liberal and progressive movement for that to happen, it will be determinative of the success of his being stopped that moderate conservatives uh, pitch in to check him. If they do not, then I am not confident that, uh, that the center and the left can hold. If they do not, then we persist. I think we need to move this away from, on the back of Scott's comment about persisting, I think we need to recognize that there is the institutional and there is the popular and they have a relationship with each other. Um, while they're not entirely interactive, they do have a relationship with each other. And I think that it's worth moving this conversation momentarily away from the cerebral and into the idea that each person has agency insofar as they can, right? So if you find, if as an American citizen or if as a British citizen or wherever you're from, if you're listening to this and you find these particular policies to be repugnant or the way that, I don't know, you see racism rising and the allowance of racism and sexism rising in your community, there's a point at which, and that point is now, you can stop and say, where is my power and where is my agency and what can I do to affect this situation differently? And I think that's the value of thinking about resistance here now today. What can, what can we do as communities to change the way that we interact with the world? Here, here. Okay, it's time for Number of the Week, where we link numbers to news stories and get entertainment as the product. Uh, what have you got for us this week, Cristala? My number is 188, which some two weeks ago... Um, was uh, the number of high-level cyber attacks on the UK. Now, the question here is where are these cyber attacks coming from? And we have it on, is it Guardian Authority, that um, mostly they are coming from Russia and China. So my question is, what does that mean? It means don't click on any suspicious <laughs> email from a Russian blonde. <laughs> <laughs> It uh, probably does mean, in connection with what we've been discussing throughout this item, that uh, fake news uh, is not just a matter of propaganda, but it is also uh, getting into your computer to try to manipulate what can be put there. Yes, as John Podesta and the Democratic uh, uh, National Committee discovered much to their cost over the course of the, the election campaign. Scott, do you have a number for us? Yes, I am pleased to give you the number of 85,000. Because it's uh, a heartwarming story in that uh, the United Kingdom government, uh, because it's so panicked about having a state visit in which Donald Trump might actually come to London, uh, having perhaps unwisely dangled that to him when Prime Minister May went to Washington in late January, has now said, Donald, we would like you to have your state visit in Birmingham. That's right, our lovely city from where we're addressing you right now. But why 85,000, you might ask? Well, a Trump administration official said, we are so excited about this because we, can, we will have 85,000 people who will be gathered and rallied in support of this wonderful president. Now, dear listener, 
The National Exhibition Center, which is our fine arena, only holds 16,000 people maximum. Aston Villa, uh, or Villa Park, the home of Aston Villa Football Club, holds at maximum 43,000. So which space did this Trump official suddenly discover in our fair city has 85,000 people? Scott, you think in such a limited way. These people are visionaries. Yes, you're it's... taking them so literally rather than, exactly. rather than seriously, Scott. Well, perhaps in his Trumpian wisdom and great effort, President Trump will create, if he could build a wall with Mexico and make them pay for it, maybe he will create a magical arena by the time he comes to visit us, say, in July, which will hold these 85,000 people. I, for one, am tremendously excited. And if President Trump can create such an arena, may I be the first to offer him the warmest of welcomes when he comes to England's second city, but it's first in heart and in spirit. Mm. But there, there was some suggestion, uh, presumably in partly in an effort to limit it to the uh, the committed supporters, that there would be a ten pound charge, uh, which would go to the British Royal Legion, I think, uh, for attendance at this rally if it happens. I'm entertained, therefore, by the prospect that in uh, tense boxing negotiation style, Donald Trump might pull out of willingness to do this talk unless he's given an appropriately large cut uh, of whatever the door fees might be from from these thousands of people. I don't, I don't see him being happy to speak uh, speak for non-voters for free. I don't see what the upside is for well, him. Dear listener, heaven help that I would ever suggest this, but if you were to happen to buy one of these 10-pound tickets, which goes to a fine charity... Theoretical 10-pound tickets. Theoretical 10-pound tickets. But then just happen not to show up on the day. <laughs> and if many of these 85,000 people didn't show up to the day, wouldn't it be interesting to see Donald Trump speaking to a near-empty mythical arena. Uh, of course, I just put that out as a suggestion not to be carried out in any possible way. Okay, I am going to, uh, uh, I'm going to continue the Trump theme with, with my number of the week um, by giving a, a couple of numbers. Uh, one is the, uh, the average disapproval rating uh, at this stage, into their pre- at, or at the beginning of their presidencies, um, of presidents uh, since records began of those sorts of figures, it is ordinary to begin your presidency with a ten percent disapproval rating. The average approval rating uh, on on net is plus thirty two points, which is to say you are much more approved of than not. Uh, Donald Trump's. Uh, approval disapproval rating on beginning his presidency, at least according to Gallup, was 45%. His disapproval rating uh, uh, today is 54%. Surely um, not. Which is to say, clearly Donald Trump has managed, whether through luck or judgment, to do something quite politically special by getting himself first nominated to his party's uh, candidacy for the presidency and then elected by the general electorate with a lower uh, share of the vote than is at all typical. But now in office, he's also reaped none of the usual uh, benefit of generosity in public opinion that comes simply with having won. So Barack Obama, for example, won with, I think it was 53% of the vote in his first term, but then had much higher approval ratings uh, subsequently. Uh, Donald Trump is not getting that. He has um, you know, more people disapproving of him than voted against him uh, in, in the election at, at, at this point. So we are clearly going to be in a period of time when four 
possibly the whole duration of his presidency, you are dealing with someone who has levels of unpopularity. It normally takes years of good hard work uh, to achieve um, uh, in, 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 in the course of a in the course of a presidency. That will maybe just be a reflection of trends to come if America is going to be a divided society for the foreseeable future, uh, or it may be uh, just a really weird one-off spectacle as someone who most people actively dislike uh, attempts to run the country in that context. Or clearly in the eyes of Donald Trump, it's all fake news.